Well, good morning again. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met or if you're new with us, my name is Brian Fletcher. I'm the associate pastor here at Spring Run. Uh, Andrew is off this weekend. Uh, and if you're new with us and you've been here for a month, you haven't even heard him preach yet. So uh, he will be here next week, I promise. So uh, Lord willing. Uh, we are going to start a new series today on the Ten Commandments, and we're calling it The Good Life. Um, and so uh, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to take two weeks to introduce the Ten Commandments. So instead of jumping into, uh, you know, one, two, three, and, and, and moving forward, we're going to take a couple of weeks to sort of understand what it is um, that we're getting ourselves into and in, in preaching on the Ten Commandments. So this morning, I want to start by reading Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And it's found in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. <clears throat> so, and he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus clearly explains to us what we were created for. We were created by God the Father to live in a loving, trusting relationship with Him as sons and daughters. We were created to not only live in relationship with God, but in relationship with one another. And that's the good life that you've created for us. But you've created boundaries for the good life. And so as we, as we understand these boundaries, as we understand what it means to love you and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves, we pray that you will help us engage with this process, that you'll open our minds and our hearts to your Holy Spirit as you speak to us and teach us these things so that we can understand this life that you've offered to us, the good life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I think we need to understand as biblical Christians <clears throat> is that all parts of the Bible fit together. They kind of fit together like pieces of a puzzle. You know, the puzzle, before you do it, has a finished picture. It's on the box. You can see it. But when all the pieces are laid out, you don't necessarily see how it's all going to fit together and what it's supposed to look like. And sometimes when you're putting the puzzle together and you find one particular piece, you are just can't figure out how in the world that is going to actually help make this picture become whole. And I think it's the same way sometimes when we read our Bibles. Sometimes we, we don't see how one particular story or passage fits into the whole story or picture of the Bible. But it does. For instance, you may think, well, we just finished a, a series on Jonah, and now we're going to move on to the Ten Commandments. And you may think that they are totally separate from each other, but they aren't. Listen to this quote from the Gospel Transformation Study Bible on Jonah. On the surface, the story of Jonah lends itself to a moralistic interpretation. 
God sends Jonah to the notoriously evil city of Nineveh, but Jonah runs away instead. So God sends a storm and a fish to rescue Jonah from his disobedience. He tells Jonah to go a second time, and finally Jonah gives in and obeys. Then God rewards Jonah's obedience by bringing him surprising success among the Ninevites. But this interpretation leaves us with a number of problematic questions. Why is chapter 4 included? Why isn't our hero Jonah a better model of obedience in the end? Why is he still angry after his success in Nineveh? And once we begin to pull back the layers of the story, we discover that it is not really about what Jonah is doing for God, but what God is doing for Jonah. Jonah is about the disturbing possibility that having pledged our life to God, we could end up spending much of that life avoiding the God we set out to serve. You may have already discovered this strange contradiction that lies at the heart of all Christian experience. While loving Christ, you find yourself turning from Him. While trusting Christ, you often battle fear and anxiety. While serving Christ, you sometimes struggle with disappointment about certain events in your life. You're not alone. Some people teach us by their example. Jonah teaches us by his weakness. And by confessing his own failures, Jonah holds up a mirror for us to see the struggles and enigmas of our Christian lives. He wants us to discover the grace of God, which, once we see it, is stronger than all our fears, anxieties, and disappointments. The real, the real hero in the story is God. We catch glimpses of God's extraordinary patience with weak people like Jonah, his relentless pursuit of lost people like the Ninevites, and the ultimate victory of his love. End quote. It's a great summary, isn't it? So how is this book of Jonah connected to the Ten Commandments? How do these pieces of the puzzle fit together? Well, I think in many ways, but mainly as a continuing story of redemption about God's love and heart for rebellious people who are trying to live their best life but are actually ruining it, right? Jonah's life would have been much better. It would have been a good life if he had lived it for God's glory instead of his own. He wouldn't have had to end up in that stinky fish, right? The good life we're going to preach about through the Ten Commandments is the same good life that Jonah was supposed to live. And the good life is good because God makes it good. Not because you make it good. It is good because it is lived for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. And the ultimate beauty of both the story of Jonah and the Ten Commandments is that God pursues rebellious people, teaches them the best way to live life, which is for his glory, and then constantly draws them back to himself when they run away, fall, or disobey. While we don't know what the rest of Jonah's life looked like after this adventure that he had uh, in Nineveh, we hope that he learned in a deeply meaningful way about the grace and mercy of God and that it led him to live the rest of his life an obedient life to God, not out of duty, but out of pure delight.
And so the, the ultimate goal of the Ten Commandments is the same. God wants us to obey Him out of our delight in Him and not just out of our duty to Him. The Ten Commandments are not about what we do for God, but they are about what God does for us. They teach us as much about God, the lawgiver, as they do about ourselves. They show us the character of God in all His justice, mercy, holiness, grace, and forgiveness. So if we set the Ten Commandments apart from the rest of redemptive history, then we make them to be just a moralistic idol that we've set up, an ideal that can be achieved by striving and obeying by our own power. No one has ever obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly, except the God-man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this is why we can't just jump into the Ten Commandments right away. It's why we need to spend a couple weeks trying to understand sort of the foundation to our obedience. And we need to understand up front what this whole idea of the good life is all about. In some respects, talking about the good life, I think, is very dangerous, okay? It's, it's kind of a dangerous statement to make, especially in our day and time. And I think first we all have to, I, I think it's dangerous for a, few, a couple of reasons. First, we all have our own picture of what the good life is supposed to look like. And then secondly, if the good life involves obeying the Ten Commandments, then what happens if I disobey them? Because I know I'm pretty good at that, right? So, biblically speaking, because that's where we want our foundation to be, the good life is a life lived in relationship with God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. And neither our circumstances, our bank accounts, or health will define the good life. Only God gets to define the good life for us. And the reason that we should rejoice in that truth, I know sometimes you hear they say, well, if God defines it for me, I'm not sure I want to go down that road. You should rejoice that God wants to define the good life for you, that he's the one that gets to do it because of what Romans 8.28 says, that God will work all things together for the good of those who love him. Ultimately, God knows best, right? And because God has shown us mercy and grace through Jesus, he will give us the good life even when we disobey and our lives seemingly fall apart. So, in his book, Desiring God by John Piper, I know you guys who know me uh, know I'm a huge John Piper fan. So, his book, Desiring God, written in 1985, was sort of his his seminal work that sort of started things uh, off for him uh, in his writing career. And so in that book, Desiring God, he, he calls this life that we're talking about Christian hedonism. And he argues that we are actually commanded to pursue joy and happiness in life. He calls it the dangerous duty of delight. And I don't have time to to expand on his argument. I think you should read that book for yourself. It's really good. I can read off some passages of Scripture that point to this idea and I believe will help us make a case for what the biblical good life looks like. 
Here's some passages. Psalm 102, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 90, 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may be glad all our days. Psalm 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And Jesus tells us, uh, these things in John 15, 11, I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then finally in John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come to give you abundant life. So God wants us to live joyful, happy, meaningful, full, abundant lives. And he, and he, set, he set us up for that. And that's what's going to lead us to, to helping us understand the Ten Commandments. But one of the things I want to talk about today for just a few minutes is this idea of obedience. Because it fits in with, with, with what we're talking about. What, where, how does obedience, how, how is that supposed to fit in with my, my good life and what God has called me to do? Is it going to be out of a sense of duty to God, or is it going to be out of a sense of delight? So first of all, we, we would understand pretty simply that obeying the law out of duty is not the goal. Obeying God's law out of just pure duty is not the goal. How can that be? Isn't it our duty to obey the law as Christians? Like, what it's all about. Well, when we only obey out of duty, then we are obeying out of love for self. We say, I should obey this command because it will make my life better. This is not genuine biblical obedience. Okay, so we're not living out of just pure selfish motives. It's got to be for the glory of God. So think about this. You're sitting around the kitchen table, right? And, um, and your wife's in the in the room just off to the room and you're going over the bills and the credit card bills and everything and you're like hey honey I think I'm gonna have to rob a bank to pay off all these bills <laughs> you know and yeah it's a joke but you're kind of thinking in the back of your head no oh, wonder if I could pull this off <laughs> you know but then you say I, I you know I'm gonna I'm gonna rob a bank in order to get money for my family but then you think well if I rob a bank, which I'm not very good at, and they've got cameras everywhere, then I'll likely get caught, right, and go to jail. And then my family will be worse off than before. So I shouldn't rob that bank. This is an act of obedience of the law, but it's done out of duty to self and to family not out of love for God, okay? Let's look, if, if, follow me, keep following along with me for a minute. Let's look at two passages of Scripture where people were obeying out of duty and not delight, okay? So the first one is considered the rich young ruler, and it's in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. I think we've got this one, yeah. So, uh, you know, Jesus 
doing his ministry. This guy comes up to him and says, and says, Behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, I think quite arrogantly, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, obeying Jesus didn't fit into the rich young ruler's self-interests. He loved himself and his possessions more than he loved Christ. It's very evident. He was trying to be obedient to the law, but it was only out of sense of duty to the law, not out of a sense of love for God. And I think it's also interesting to note that often when we read this passage, we think that it's just the rich young ruler didn't want to give up all his possessions. But we missed that Jesus called him to do more than that. Did you catch that at the end? Jesus called the young man to come and follow him. And he was unwilling to do that. Duty and not delight. Here's the other passage. It's in Matthew 23. Jesus is in a very intense discussion with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he has some very strong words for them. Now remember, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people of the day. Okay? I mean, there was nobody else that was doing their, their due diligence and obeying the law and everything. And here's the words that Jesus has for, him, for them. Woe! Because whenever, whenever there's a woe in the Scriptures, you know something bad's coming. Okay? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, these are strong words, and Jesus' point that he's making is that their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. 
Their motives for obedience was selfish. They chose to obey the easy laws. Did you catch that? Like tithing out of the tiniest little bit of their herbs and spices. Cleaning the cup. But they refused to obey the difficult laws of mercy and justice and faithfulness. They had love for themselves, but they didn't have love for God and others. So then the big question becomes, how should we obey and what is the goal? Well, obeying the law out of delight and love for God is the goal. That's the goal. Obeying out of delight and our love for God, that is the goal. So if we go back to our bank robbery scenario, I say to myself, honey, I, I need to rob a bank in order to pay off these bills. But then I remember, I remember how much God loves me. I remember his promises to me. I remember that he said he would take care of my needs. I remember that he wants me to find contentment in him and not my circumstances. So then I say, I'm not going to rob the bank and steal because God loves me and he's not going to abandon me. I don't need to rob a bank to pay my bills. There's another way. God's going to figure it out. We'll figure it out together. Right? That, 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 that's more of a posture of obeying the law to not steal out of delight in God and who he is and his character and standing upon his promises and his love for us than it does just out of pure duty to self. So again, let's, let's find a biblical story that, that kind of gives us the positive thing. And I think the story of Zacchaeus is a good story for that. This is in Luke 19. Again, super familiar, but let's read it together again. It's beautiful. So he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, meaning the, the Pharisees and the religious people, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone, to be, gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus, who has basically been stealing from the Jewish people in their ta and tax, tax fraud, let's say, 
and uh, charging them more than they owed the Romans and keeping it for himself and so forth. And everyone knew who he was because he was the chief tax collector. And so the religious people couldn't possibly understand why in the world would Jesus want to be with this person? He's so evil. Jesus loves him. That's why. He wants to hang out with him. He knows what he's going to do. He knows he can turn Zacchaeus' life around. It's a beautiful story. And Zacchaeus was overwhelmed by Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a great, it's, just, it's, a, it's one of those great testimonies, right? Like, he was an evil little guy, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus enters into his life and changes it 180 degrees. He was, Zacchaeus was delighted to give his money to the poor and to pay back anyone he had defrauded. And Zacchaeus was not obeying out of duty. His obedience was out of pure delight. I think that comes across in the passage. And I think Zacchaeus fell in love with Jesus and started following that, that day. So, what is the summary of the law and what is our motivation to obedience? Well, the summary of the law, as we read in the beginning, is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And in that order, our created design is that we would love our Creator, live in a beautiful, meaningful, deep relationship with Him, and then He has put it in our hearts to love others, to love those around us, whoever that might be. And we do this with delight and love for a God who has first loved us. We can't, forgive, we can't forget that. We do this, we love other people because God has first loved us. And he is the one who set that love into our hearts. So all the pieces of the puzzle start coming together and we see from Genesis to Revelation a picture of a gracious and merciful God who chases down rebellious people, which is you and me. He sends his own son to pay the penalty for all the evil that they've done and brings them back into fellowship with himself. And the picture of this love drives us. It drives us to delight in loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what the good life looks like. So come back. Come back next week and the weeks after as we continue to explore more in depth of what the good life is about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of what the good life can look like of what you want it to look like, how you've designed and created it, your blueprint for the good life is one lived in relationship with you through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Let us not forget that, that you've, you've loved us first and, and that we've come to know you and, and know the depth of that love as we sang of it before earlier today. How deep the Father's love for us 
and that that motivates us and compels us. Your love for us is what motivates us and compels us into obedience with you, a loving, faithful God. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.